My name is Samantha Yannity. I am the Justice Educator at Intercommunity Peace and Justice Center. And if you're unfamiliar, um, we're uh, our work is supported by 22 religious organizations. I always like to point out those are mostly women. So our work is far and wide, and we focus on injustice in the church and in the world. And as we mentioned, we're hosting, I'm hosting a session with Avery Haller. And my reason for wanting to put this event together is often when tragedy strikes, there's always this endless cycle of jargon that circulates around mental health and quick solutions. And often these are quickly printed on headlines and through an array of social media platforms, but no one seems to actually take the time to put some context and nuance to these definitions that we often see. So as we all know this year, and it's not over yet, <laughs> we've, ex we've witnessed a tremendous amount of trauma from the thousands and thousands that have died from this pandemic to our Black brothers and sisters dying at the hands of police brutality yet again. And so with everything going on in this world at such a tremendous degree, I found it necessary to create a space, even if it's a small space on a Saturday afternoon, to try to process everything collectively. And that's why I contacted Avery. So we will, for this brief moment of time, attempt to make heads and tails of this very confusing time. I'd like to welcome you all here and welcome Avery. Thank you for being with us. My first question is a two-parter. Avery, can you explain the difference for us between mental health and public health and why it's so important that we see mental health in this way framed as a public health concern? Yeah, thank you for that question. So I think I'll delve a little bit into the difference between um, kind of the healthcare system and public health to answer that question. So first of all, I generally don't see any difference between mental and physical health anymore. They're so intertwined. So when I talk about, that's just an important caveat. When I talk about mental health, I'm talking about all aspects of our health. I'm talking about how our bodies are regulating at a cellular level and how that affects our personality, how that affects our mood. So to me, the mental and physical health are really intertwined. So that's level one. And then we have at a sort of broader societal level, we have these two healthcare structures. One of them is the healthcare system, and that's what most people think about when they think about health and healthcare. They think about hospitals, they think about doctor's offices, they think about getting a shot, they think about getting medicine from the pharmacy. And those are all part of the healthcare system. Those are all individual interventions that help us with acute illnesses. Uh, whether it's a chronic illness or an infectious disease, they're helping an individual treat uh, an illness that is presenting immediately. And then on the other hand, we have public health. And public health is all about the unseen and unacknowledged parts of our experience. So public health includes things like sanitation. Is the water clean? 
It includes infectious disease monitoring. So that like at the beginning of this pandemic, the epidemiologists who were monitoring the novel coronavirus, though they were part of public health versus the doctors in the hospital who were treating patients, they're part of the healthcare system. So again, public health is, are all these things outside of, uh, outside of individual treatments. So public health is clean air, clean water, uh, safe communities, and access to food, all the things that we basically think about making life worth living, or it also includes the things that we just take for granted. Um, like we take it for granted that we have sidewalks which I don't take for granted anymore after I moved to Nashville because there are way fewer sidewalks. Um, so, <laughs> so all this is to say mental health really is, a, is a, a really prime example of health that straddles both of these systems. So mental health is obviously, we all know this at an intuitive level, extraordinarily impacted by our everyday environment. So for example, right now, um, as we're living through a pandemic, it's hard to have a good mood. It's hard to feel hope during the day when there's so much uncertainty. And that's all created by these small cues in our environment, such as going to the grocery store, seeing everybody wearing masks, which at first maybe felt kind of scary to feel like, you know, what's going on? What's this pandemic? What's happening? Um, and now maybe makes us feel safer because we know that masks really are helping stop the spread. And I think the mistake in terms of mental health, the mistake that, that sometimes the media makes when they're, when they're talking about mental health is they talk about mental health in terms of hospitalizations or diagnoses. And that is all very, very important, especially for disease monitoring. But there's a way bigger piece of mental health, which is just how we live our daily lives, how, our, how we feel trust in the environment around us, how we feel belonging in the environment around us. You know, I'll, I'll also get into racism later in our conversation, but how um, our experience of racism or not, or, or our experience of privilege impacts our ability to feel like we can trust people and we belong. So those are all aspects of, of mental health that sort of have a, a, broader, a broader understanding that's not just about going to the doctor's office and getting checked out. And again, last thing I'll say, the broader aspects are public health. There are other aspects of the public health system, but, but in general, when you're thinking about public health, you think about all the levers that exist outside of the doctor's office. Great. Thank you for all that. That's a very helpful explanation. You used the, when you were describing all that, you used the word access, like access to clean water, you gave the example. So what came to mind for me is like our lack of access to mental health, would you say that that's because we, like you said, we frame mental health in this hospitalization, so we kind of work in extremes? Yeah, I think that that's a good point, but um, often in our, in the, I would say in the dominant culture, we often don't prioritize things that basically make us feel pleasure or feel belonging, and therefore when we don't prioritize 
prioritize pleasure, trust, belonging, we end up in spaces where we don't have great mental health and we think that's just normal. But, and so we think normal uh, is having slightly less than perfect mental health and therefore we don't treat it until it gets really, really, really bad. So I think in terms of access to mental health, you're totally right. There's, there's two different levels of access. There's the access, people need access to therapists. People need access to medications if that's what's going to help their mental health. But people also need an accessible way to live a healthy life in their daily lives. So people need to be surrounded by others who are validating their emotions. Um, surrounded by others who encourage them to dance, to laugh, to sing. These parts of our culture that um, unfortunately in the dominant culture and the dominant European descended culture especially have really been pushed aside and counted as silly. So that's why, I mean, again, I'll get into this more in a minute, but it's so one of the really exciting parts about the spotlight on the movement for black lives right now is I think a lot of people are discovering some of the wisdom traditions that have been pushed outside of dominant culture, but are actually the reservoir that teach us how to live a healthy life, how to live with more dance, more song, how to build resilience into our bodies. That's a good point. I, I think there we're kind of working against our individualism that is strongly rooted in, in, in whiteness and in capitalism versus collectivism, which I feel like is predominant in black, indigenous and people of color, communities of color. Um, and I think that's kind of where I'm, I'm seeing the divide. Would you say that that's true as far as mental health? I mean, I think that there's definitely a, a divide there. I feel like I'm not the, I'm definitely not the expert in terms of Black and Indigenous people of color uh, communities. I do, there's a podcast that I really like that I wanted to plug called All My Relations. And in that podcast, it's, um, it's done by an Indigenous woman who interviews people from all different tribes around the nation and she really hits on all these different aspects of of native life and all these different aspects of what it mean what it would mean to have um what what health would mean and really like what does that include it includes food sovereignty it includes um ability to uh have self-determination and she goes through the whole season is great. So I'll just, I'll plug that one, but I do see a divide there. That kind of leads me into like my uh, next question for you, which is um, we, we, heard, we heard earlier on, and we still in a slight way do hear this um, earlier on the pandemic that experts been calling in these symptoms that we've been experiencing, referencing anywhere from anxiety, depression, loss of appetite, exhaustion if you're feeling extra exhausted during this time and they were referring to all of this as collective trauma and what does that mean exactly what how should we address this collective trauma that is such a good question and i think the looking at what's happening right now from a trauma lens or a trauma-informed care lens i think gives us a lot of tools for how to move forward so first of all briefly there are a couple different ways that 
I think trauma is kind of a buzzword right now. So I'll just break it down a little bit. So there are big T single event traumas that happen. That's like you are violently robbed or somebody in your life dies violently and there's there's some or there's a natural disaster and there's this big t trauma there's also little t trauma and little t trauma are includes toxic stress so that's anything where there's a perceived threat to life often over and over so that's things like child abuse um, or neglect something where it's not that in that moment your body thought you were going to die but over time your body got the message that if you don't take care of yourself nobody's going to take care of you and it really what it does is it really enhances our amygdalas which is fight flight or freeze response um so and, and it kind of like makes our frontal lobes go offline <laughs> which is our which is our ability to think rationally so it's a very adaptive response. Like if, again, if we're running, if we're running from a bear, people always use this example, but if you're running from a bear, if there's some immediate reason you need to get out of town, then yes, your amygdala, the oldest part of your brain, it just tells you to run and you run and you're safe. It's not very helpful when we're dealing with something long-term such as a pandemic. So at first, when, when the pandemic first started, I definitely recognized like, Oh, there's, trauma response, trauma response. It's starting up. It's starting up. Like I, I felt, um, just kind of shaky. I felt a little like nervous around people. And while that was, sir, it was trying to serve me by keeping me away from other people. It's also not a healthy state to be in long-term. So long-term, what that can do is with elevated cortisol levels, which is the stress hormone, one of the stress hormones, it can degrade your organs. Um, and so over time, uh, you end up with organ damage and, you know, severe trauma in childhood has actually been linked to um, cancers uh, as well as diabetes and other physical ailments um, and mental health ailments, which again is why physical and mental health are really one and the same. So right now, I think there are definitely a few cues that we can look to to see that people are really having trauma responses to this event. Number one, as I mentioned, when you, at least for me, when I see people when I'm walking around and they don't have a mask on, I sort of like, you know, jump back a little bit. There's this sort of like instinctual reaction. I feel like it's like a survival protective response that's in innate. Yes. Exactly. And that's exactly what the trauma response is. It's trying to protect you. But then what happens is long term. Okay, so let's say, yeah, I'm kind of jumpy around people for several months. Now, when the pandemic's over, when we have a vaccine, how do I heal? How do I make it safe to be around other people again? Because here's the thing about trauma and our bodies in general. Our bodies record an imprint of what's happening to us. So we can't just think our way out of, we can't just think, uh, well, it's safe now, so I'm safe. Our bodies are not going to feel safe. So we really have to attend to the needs of our bodies um, in terms of healing and especially from this pandemic. So it, there are many individual things we can do. Um, so I'll touch on a couple of those, but there's also, I think there are also some public health measures that we can take to help people feel safer. Um, so on an individual level, 
obviously practicing mindfulness is great. Making sure that you have solid connections with either family and friends or a faith community is really, really important. Making sure that you have as much access to clean food and water as you can and that you're feeding yourself and <laughs> drinking a lot of water. It sounds so basic, but it makes a difference. It makes your body feel safe. Allowing yourself to go slow when you want to go slow is also good for calming trauma. And then there really is a huge part about co-regulation with other people's nervous systems. So our nervous systems like to be around other people, which is, which is part of what is hard about the pandemic right now is if we are staying physically distanced, that means that we are not really getting that co-regulation. Um, so we do have to lean more on the mindfulness or holding our pets uh, or holding the trees out in nature, finding some way for touch to be part of it. Um, and then on a public health the, the public health measures are, are interesting because um, we, we're obviously going through this collective trauma. So to me, that would say we need to have a collective response. People are not meant to go through this alone. People are not meant to take care of this whole thing alone. Um, there are a few missteps that happened in the beginning of the pandemic that made things harder for people. There was a real lack of leadership. There was, a, there of course, with any pandemic, there's going to be uncertainty, but there was a real lack of um, just vision given to people about what this could look like and how they could stay safe. And therefore, I think things got really chaotic really quickly. And we're still kind of coming down from that. I also think post pandemic, it would be great if um, we're able to put counselors in schools, for example, um, make sure that counseling is available at work um, so that people can access counseling easily. And also, I think that there's going to need to be some changes in terms of the way that we structure the, our infrastructure to make sure that people feel safe. So that may look like things like, for example, in buildings, describing the air filtration system um, and making sure that the air filtration system is adequate um, so that people feel safe in indoors again. I'll stop there, but yeah, go ahead and ask me more questions. Yeah, I just wanted to circle back to a couple of things that you mentioned um, earlier. You, you said, you used some interesting things. You mentioned how trauma can on a personal level can degrade our um, organs um, how there's like a co-regulation with our nervous system going on when, and, and i'm just wondering a couple things when when we don't have the access to systems that allow us to support ourselves within the community and individual individually and i know that you mentioned earlier all these things are interconnected can you say that that could also lead, I've been hearing a lot of, of things about kind of like ancestral trauma with, within communities that have already been marginalized before the pandemic, but all this stuff is just heightening all of this. And I'm just wondering if, if people are lacking support systems, if they're lacking access to things, if, they're, if their organs are, their inter internal systems as well as their immune systems are impacted, 
could that, I guess I want to try to say is, could this worsen things? Could this cause, is this might be one of the reasons why people are saying that people are, communities of color are dying at a higher rate because they're lacking access to these certain things? What are yes. your thoughts on that? Yes, that is such a good question. And, and, and I thank you for bringing up historical trauma. I also meant to bring that up. So we see that the effects of trauma, there are, there are many studies that are showing that they last several generations. There's debate about how many generations, but we see physical differences in cell structure several generations down the line. So in the United States, for anybody who is descended from formerly enslaved people, for anybody who is part of the indigenous population that experienced a genocide, for anybody who has experienced racism even in their own life, there's, there's trauma there that has a memory in the body. And so when there are these major other traumatic events such as a pandemic, it's very triggering to the body. Also, I do wanna say, Trauma is not a death sentence. It is possible to build up resilience and it's really a testament to communities of color that they, they have these traditions that have so much resilience because they have worked so hard to overcome their trauma and, and live such bright lives. But definitely, I think we see historical trauma playing uh, a part in this pandemic for several reasons. One is that legacy at the cellular level. Um, I think another one is that you can see in the health disparities that were already there, it's just magnifying it. Um, some of those health disparities are because of ancient trauma. Some of those health disparities are from modern traumas it, or, or fairly modern. You know, if we talk about redlining and and where people are living and um, a lot of communities of color are um, were forced to live in parts of town where there was a lot of toxic waste um, from companies and that then affected their health. So definitely, just in a short answer to your question, trauma is affecting things. I also just wanted to mention, it's, it's going to be very interesting in terms of young people right now, so school-age children. So school-age children are also going through this collective trauma at, a, at an age where it is definitely going to affect them moving forward. So obviously there are things that we can do to create a loving home environment and hopefully a loving outer environment that help build resilience in children so they don't look at, so that they don't actually experience the effects of trauma at a cellular level. But I do think that's just another point in terms of collective and historical trauma is what's happening right now will have an effect far down the line. And then those children will feel that um, that trauma as adults, like what they're feeling now as children, they can they can experience it long term as adults as well. Possibly, yeah. I mean, it obviously depends on the individual. I'm speaking a lot from sort of a public uh, a public health population health um, aspect. So in general, we'll see these trends on an individual level. There might be kids who feel very traumatized by this. There might be kids who <laughs> never think about it again. But again, our bodies have a memory, and so the next. I mean, I would expect. Well, I, I mean, I really can't predict, but children now it's possible that this could lead to like fear of 
medical intervention or, or things like that. I, I mean, you really can't speculate too much um, about what's going to happen, but we can make sure that we're supporting people to mitigate whatever does happen. Okay, great. One final thing from me, and then I can open it up to others. I'm just wondering, are there some, if you will, action items that we can take in terms of maybe advocating for or some steps that we can take for to support our community on a larger um, public scale? Yes, yeah, there's a few things. Um, on a community level, we really wanna look at building communities of care. Um, so that's a phrase that is, has kind of been tossed around in some activist literature and some public health literature, um, but in general, it's exactly what it sounds like. So a community of care is a, a sort of bubble of a community uh, that is making sure that its members have what they need. So basically, food, water, shelter. Like you mentioned um, earlier, the water filter was that with the air filtration system and things that make the the environment safe for people. Is that part of that? Oh yes, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Anything. Yeah, a community of care basically says, "What do we need to make our community feel healthy and safe?" And it's self-determined by each community. Oh, a key piece of this are community health workers. So community health workers are a model that has risen to some, some prominence, but definitely needs to be, have more funding, um, where people from the community are advocates within the healthcare system and within the public health system for their individual neighborhoods. I think it's important when we think about creating a community of care is that we can do this, we can do this on our own. Um, we can check in on our neighbors. We can make sure that people have what they need, that they have meals. We can make sure that new mothers have support um, so that they don't experience as much postpartum depression. We can start creating these communities. And there are things at a government level that would make a huge difference, such as paid family leave. That makes a huge difference when we're talking about our ability to even create communities of care. And so public health tends to work more on that infrastructural side, like what laws can we pass that will make it possible for people to create a community of care? What, um, you know, what do we need to do in terms of upholding regulations that already exist to make sure that certain companies aren't polluting the river? Things like that is where public health usually lands. So it really sounds like we're to hold our elected officials accountable. And I think a really yes. good way to do that is to register and to vote and register others, help other people get registered to vote and to vote. Yes. And to not, don't, uh, I, don't let yourself get dissuaded from doing what you know is right. I think there's a huge piece of mental health that we maybe don't acknowledge all the time that's, um, I'm, I'm just gonna take it to the side and come back, but I think about a lot of young people right now experience a lot of anxiety. And when you ask them why they have anxiety, they say climate change a lot of times. And I have, I have also experienced that and I have experienced older people say to me, you need to figure out how to calm down and forget about it. I, that is not, that is not actually supportive of my mental health. What is supportive of my mental health is to change the structures that are causing the climate to deteriorate. Help me, help me change the structures. 
my inner knowing, my intuition knows that there's a threat to my life because of climate change. So therefore supporting my mental health is we need to address climate change. Um, so all that is to say, in terms of holding our elected officials accountable, trust your intuition and trust when you feel that anxiety or you feel that depression, there, it's offering you something. It's telling you a truth. So don't let those elected officials tell you that it's not possible. We can figure out the logistics, <laughs> um, but we need to figure out our vision first. That's a really important part to trust our own instincts and our intuition because they're there for a reason. I feel sometimes we're programmed to think that we have to ignore them, but like you mentioned earlier, it, it's, it's a threat. We have it in our amygdala and our brain that's telling us these signals, like something's off, something's off. And I feel like our, I, I think in our society, we gaslight people and tell people, you're not really experiencing trauma or this isn't really real. And it is very real because our body, I think is just screaming to us, pay attention. Exactly. So I can probably go on and on, but I want to give people the space and the time to ask some questions. I didn't see any um, questions in the chat, but I wanted to open up the floor for if, for if anyone had any questions you wanted to ask um, Avery. Um, now's your time. <laughs> Does anyone have any questions? Does anybody, it, you, nobody has to share, but does anybody have any reflections on what's going on right now or how you think that we could be better supported at a structural level for what's happening? Did you have, Pat, did you have something you wanted to say? Uh, well, I don't, it's not really responsive to the question. That's okay. But I really appreciated what you've had to say. Sorry, I was so late and anyway, sorry for my parts. But um, what I've noticed as you were talking is that um, my own mental health is pretty strong right now because I think of the structures we were able to put in place. So I'm a grandmother and newly retired, about a year, one year retired. So we, I have, and I have, um, you know, financially secure. So I can order grocery. I can do all that stuff without stress. Um, and I have grandchildren. And one set of them lives across the street. So we just made a big pod and we took some chances, you know, at the beginning, but kids home from school made that easy. Anyway, so I have a pod of about 13 which is getting a little leaky. We might be in some trouble, but for so, for, so at this point, I still have touch. I have great hope. I have all those happy things. And um, I almost don't want to tell people because, you know, it's to some degree that makes others feel even more deprived of what they're not getting. But I just wanted to kind of echo what you were saying about um, the lack of touch being one of the problems and so on. And, uh, just really reflecting how true that seems in my life, that those, that's probably part of the reason our mental health is so good right now in our little pod. And, uh, you know, I lost my mother during this time. 
uh, 94-year-old, um, and we made really the best of that. Uh, we were able to. And we've had a new baby in the last week. So we've got everything going on here. All right, so non-responsive to your question, but um, it just reflects my um, in-tuneness, I think, with what you were saying. Thank you. Thank you. That makes me so happy to hear. <laughs> like, I like hearing, we, you know, I, I understand that it might feel strange to share that when other people aren't experiencing that. I also think it's important to share that story to show what it could look like. And I guess that's sort of what I, um, I was missing from the beginning of the pandemic response in terms of the, the federal government and even the high level public health officials to, for, to some extent. I wish they had leaned into their humanness and said, what could this look like on a daily basis? Please make a pod of people. Please make sure that you're getting touch from someone. Um, and so I love hearing that story because it's such a great, uh, it's such a great show of what it takes to build resilience to in side hard situations like a pandemic and like you said there are big structural things like financial security food security and if and hearing your story gives us a roadmap for how we can at a public level provide that for others as well yeah i think it just shows um what hope can look like and when you have support systems in place and when you have people that you can lean on what that looks like and when we're and we, we don't see it um i think our natural instinct is when we don't see something we, we don't think it's important or we don't respond to it so if we can see or hear more stories of hope in a time of crisis i, I think people would advocate more for the public public spectrum of mental health Okay. okay, the ancestral trauma effect through generations, is it common knowledge and how to heal through childhood when unaware till, until one is an adult? Oh, this is the question. This is the question. Number one, ancestral trauma is not common knowledge. It is in certain activist circles, I would say, but in general, trauma science, trauma science is only about 20 or 30 years old under trauma wisdom is ancient all faith traditions i mean you look at the book of job in christianity that is completely about trauma um and then there are many traditions outside of christianity that talk about basically how to overcome trauma um and you look at the way that um the african-american community in the united states has created so many amazing structures um to deal with ancestral trauma that they have experienced like um all the types of art that have come from african-american leaders um all the types of uh, like, like I'm thinking music, gospel, jazz, all of that, um, different types of, of ways of being together. Um, that has all come through their process of healing, which is awesome and something to learn from uh, and something to hold up. And I think in terms of like how to heal this until one is, <laughs> unless one becomes aware as an adult, I think this is where Therapy, on an individual level, therapy is very important. Working with a licensed therapist, especially a therapist who works with trauma, um, is really important. And it, on an individual level, we can all make huge strides when we have access to that therapy.
the other piece of this is we need to start interrupting those cycles of trauma because often for example this is pretty common knowledge but when somebody is abused they have a heightened likelihood of abusing their own children um, so it cycles like that we need to interrupt those cycles of trauma by first of all getting adults help before or teenagers getting children teenagers adults help before they have their own children having better support systems for families is huge in this making sure that families are food secure making sure that families um, have paid family leave making sure that we're taking away as many of the triggers as possible that would trigger someone to abuse so stress triggers our old stress responses so we want to take away as many triggers as we can support the individual in their healing make sure that there's other um, things in place such as like reporting and, and making sure that if if there is child abuse going on that um, it's reported right away and that child is is removed to a safe environment um, hopefully with a kinship caregiver somebody another family member all of these we need all of these tools to start interrupting the cycle of trauma it's very very complex <laughs> um, and it's definitely not common knowledge i hope that everyone here spreads it to more people. Um, I'm going to give a resource, uh, a resource list to Samantha to post with the recording of this video as well um, that has some more resources. That's a great question. Thank you for asking that. And I, when I think of an, this ancestral trauma, because someone was, uh, I saw something on, circulating on social media where somebody had asked a question about, are we, it was in terms of racism, like are we addressing um, racism within or un, I guess I should say not addressing racism but unlearning racism within ourselves as white persons within the last 40 years or something and someone said actually it's hundreds and hundreds of years of unlearning so my assumption is that this un, un ancestral trauma is built in to the cells and bodies of people from hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years carrying out and it will probably take hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of, of healing too. So I think this is like a continuous process. It's also, can I just make one point on that? It's also why equity is so important and not just equality. So right. this gets talked about in public health a lot and I think some other circles. Um, equality is giving everybody the same things. Equity is giving people what they need. So some people don't really need extra help. Some people need extra help or extra support structures or different support structures. Um, and when we look at this through a trauma lens, it becomes obvious. When somebody's dealing with not only dealing with daily life and all the stresses we have, but also dealing with the fact that they have some trauma, historical trauma in their background that is making, that is triggering their cells, of course we're gonna take care of them in a different way than somebody who maybe doesn't have ancestral trauma. We, we all, you know, with the acknowledgement that trauma is everywhere, it's in all families, it's, you know, there was a study done at one point that 70% of people have had some type of trauma in their background. So this is not, it's not that nobody has had a hard life. Uh, it's really just making sure that we're supporting people who especially who've had major trauma to thrive in our world. We have a um, from Helena. Thank you very much for this space of conversation. I really appreciate building resilient hope through community of care 
it helps me know that our body remembers trauma even when rationally we overcome anxieties. Just knowing that makes me more sensitive and attentive to those around me who seem extremely preoccupied with one's own safety. I want to think through more as to how to support one another, recognize our hidden trauma, and mm -hmm. help build resilient hope through that. But do you have any suggestions of helping one another recognize unconscious trauma? That is a wonderful question. Thank you for your comments and thank you for asking that. Yeah, I think in terms of helping one another recognize our unconscious trauma, there's, there's a couple of pieces to that. Number one is, I think I, I want to, you know, take a step back a little bit and, and realize that I, I get really excited about the topic of trauma. It is also a very hard topic for a lot of people to talk about, and we have to enter it with compassion and compassion for ourselves and compassion for others. And this is again, where it, it's so great to have communities that even start talking about the words trauma, the words trauma-informed care um, so that we can start to recognize these unconscious traumas. It's also very important on an individual level to, again, work with a licensed therapist. There are, there are actually several different modalities that have different types of trauma healing. And so you can kind of pick which one works for you, including modalities that include touch or modalities that are talk only. I think there's also a lot we can do in sort of the educational space in terms of recognizing our unconscious traumas. And I, I think it's actually very tied to uncovering our unconscious biases as well. So when we react with fear to something else, often it's because of some kind of trauma that either we've had or someone in the past has had, or that someone told us was gonna happen. And, and that's where it's sort of like the propaganda aspect comes in. Um, sometimes we're told that bad things are going to happen and it really affects us. And we think, like I'm, I'm thinking about Amy Cooper and the situation with Christian Cooper, Amy Cooper in Central Park. I mean, when I watched that video, she's afraid. A, a, a man popped out in the park when she wasn't expecting it. Also, because of the racism that she was enculturated with, the way she reacted was to take it out on him and take it out in a racist way. We need to start interrupting. So, so like on an individual body level, yes, she's experiencing real fear, but the way that that gets translated uh, is translated through this racist structure that she was raised with and these racist ideas that she never worked to let go of um, and then created and then she passed on the harm and created real harm for Christian Cooper. And so I think that, yes, I think these unconscious biases and like looking at, <laughs> looking at issues like that, and then we can say, okay, what happened? What has happened in, like what happened in the white community or what were we told was gonna happen that we filtered it that way? Or, I think that another way that we can think about this is uh, there's a there's an author who posts a lot on Instagram and I her name's Sonia Renee Taylor and she talks about how there are pieces of the dominant European culture and the way that we've been taught to relate to each other 
that are traumatic to each other, even though we don't think about it that way. So it's things like not leaving room for people to express their emotion, obsession with linear time and everything being on time and buttoned up and it, it causes trauma in people. Um, and so when we're looking at unconscious trauma, I think we really need to look at that level. Like we need to look at these big picture, big level. How does our family relate to one another? Are we kind to each other? Are we compassionate? Do we give each other grace? Um, and we can look at that in all parts of society. Yeah, that's a great point. It's interesting. Um, you mentioned Amy Cooper, and I believe the, the language that she used was threat or he's threatening me. Even if it wasn't there, there was this sense of alarm bells on her, in her brain from, from what she had been taught was sending out a signal, I am in immediate danger and therefore I am responding in this fight or flight or freeze way that you mentioned earlier. So it's interesting how implicit bias built into racism can trigger these threatening bodily and emotional responses that we've seen played out over and over again. Exactly, exactly. And that's, and, and you know, a lot of that comes from, again, propaganda that has, that circulated through the slavery, the era of enslavement, the era of Jim Crow, the era of civil rights. Like there's all this propaganda that was circulating that has become common sense for a lot of people. And that's where the problem is. That's where the problem is. When fear becomes part of our common sense, we've cut off a part of our humanity. We right. cut off our connection. And connection is what heals that trauma. So we're just perpetuating those cycles of trauma. And that's specifically about racial trauma, but you can look at other types of trauma as well. Well, I want to be mindful of the time. This has been great. I'm sure we could all um, keep on going. We have time for maybe one more question, if anybody has one. I do. Um, hey, Avery, in your resource list, which I'm very much looking forward to, is there anything about how to help white people understand um, historic trauma and ancestral trauma and how to explain, you know, that whole, aren't you over that now? My parents didn't do it and, you know, that whole thing. Yeah, that's a great question. I, um, I didn't have a specific, I have a, I have a few general trauma resources, but I'll put something specifically about that in definitely. Thank you for that question. That's great. Thank you, Avery, for your, sharing your expertise with us. And I also just wanted to say really quick, thank you everybody for coming. And I appreciate you being willing to share in this space as well. Thanks everybody.